Hello. If you were to ask most people in the West to name the most influential empire of the past, the Roman Empire is likely to be mentioned. In fact, we structure our history around the narrative of this great empire, with Rome being the height of ancient civilization and the fall of Rome marking the beginning of the Dark Ages, which continue until the Renaissance when Europe rediscovers the greatness of the old civilizations. Even today, government buildings in the United States and Europe are still patterned on the Roman model with their pillars in marble. Degrees from prestigious universities are still written in Latin, and we still use Roman numerals when we want things to appear particularly classy. These are all tributes to the greatness of Roman civilization. Yet the Islamic Empire, and particularly the Umayyad Caliphate, ruled a significantly larger expansive land in Rome, it was the largest the world had seen up to that point. And the volume of scientific, legal, and historic documents produced in Arabic was much greater than that of Rome. Its legal code was much more detailed, and its architectural achievements were at least on the same scale. But perhaps more importantly, the influence of Arabic today is more directly and deeply felt than, say, Latin is. The culture of this Arab empire has a direct connection to the cultures of what we call the Arab-speaking world today. And also importantly, the Renaissance that revitalized Europe was not the rediscovery of ancient Greek and Roman learning that had been lost, really a transmission of that culture and that inheritance which had been developed and expanded upon by medieval Arabic scholars. Well, in recent decades the Western world has started to recognize and acknowledge this influence of the Golden Age of Islam and we're coming to see this Islamic civilization as part of the historical narrative and not see the Middle Ages as a hibernation of learning and culture. So when we talk about the great Islamic empire, its foundations were really laid during the Umayyad Caliphate, which stretched from about a century from the period of the Rashidun, the first caliphs after the prophet, until its fall in 750 AD. Now as important as the Umayyad period was, it has received far less attention than what went before it and what came after it. And in truth, this series is going to be guilty of the same thing. We're going to spend a lot more time talking about the Abbasid Caliphate that comes after. But it is important to consider the Umayyad period as that time when the idea of an Islamic empire really takes shape, when the structures that would shape the Islamic state were put in place. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. Depending on your perspective, the Umayyad Caliphate was one of the best or the worst of times. If you're into powerful empires like Rome or ancient Egypt or Persia, then this is an empire with as much might and glory as any of those. From a religious perspective, though, the Umayyad state is often seen as the beginning of corruption and decadence, and it usually gets a pretty bad rap. Well, part of that is due to the fact that the history was written by those who overthrew the Umayyad caliphs, and those were the Abbasids, and so they didn't have much of an interest in making the people that they had replaced look good. 
But there was some truth to this. While the Umayyad caliphs never reached the levels of decadence of notorious Roman emperors like Caligula, governing a massive empire and accumulating vast amounts of power and wealth does tend to lead to accesses, and the uh, Umayyad caliphs certainly enjoyed their life and their power. So to those in Islam who detach themselves from the state, and we've talked about the Shia, the Kharijites, and there were others, the perceived decadence of the Umayyad state made them the enemies of Islam. And unfortunately, this trend of withdrawing from society and fighting against it uh, would form a potent strand in the history of Islam and continues even to this day. So we've talked about the foundations of the Umayyad state. We talked about Muawiyah and his defeat of the followers of Ali. And we talked briefly about how Muawiyah's son Yazid defeated a rebellion led by Ali's son Hassan. And that's really what pushed the Shia into their isolation on the margins of the caliphate and firmly established this Sunni state. Well, although Yazid gained notoriety as being the killer of Hassan, and also because his appointment by his father to be Khalif marked the beginning of hereditary rule in the caliphate and in the eyes of many turned the Islamic caliphate into a, a regular kingdom just like the kingdoms of the world. Uh, Yazid's rule lasted only three years. It was a very brief period. And in fact, the early years of Umayyad rule saw a remarkable number of rebellions and internal conflicts. And keeping track of them can get quite dizzying, and we're not even going to try to do that. Except we do want to note that much of the Umayyad reputation for ruthlessness came from suppressing these rebellions. In fact, in the immediate aftermath of the defeat of Hassan and the Shia, a major rebellion occurred under Abdullah ibn Zubair in the city of Mecca. And of course, this was a tremendous threat to the legitimacy of the Islamic State. So in the process of recapturing Mecca, the Umayyads heavily damaged the city, including the Kaaba Shrine. Now they did rebuild it, but this was just added to their list of transgressions as seen by their opponents. There would be two more caliphs after Yazid in a space of two years, but it would really be when Abdul Malik, who ruled for 20 years, from the years 685 to 705 AD, that the Umayyad Caliphate would be established as a truly great empire. Even this, though, Abdul Malik faced rebellions during his reign and there was tremendous turbulence. And much of this came from the descendants of Ali and their supporters. But Abdul Malik's success was not just the military defeat of his enemies. A big part of his success came from standardizing the institutions of the empire. He was making it more than the rule of just one man, but actually a state with strong institutions that could rule an empire that stretched from Spain to the borders of China. Now, as you remember when we talked earlier about the Shia and the different views of leadership in the Sunni and Shia, of course, Shia is based on following a personal very charismatic spiritual leader who is seen as endowed with special powers. And if you remember, the Sunnis countered this by building a state, by building an apparatus, and by making their rule not the rule of a charismatic individual, but the establishment of a very standardized state. Well, this was taken to a high degree by Abdul Malik. He really founded the institutions that would come to characterize the Islamic empire for centuries to come. 
Now, part of this was necessity. He was ruling a huge empire, and so there had to be standardization. But part of it was also a counter to his opponents, to the Shia, by showing that this was not the rule of one man, but this was actually the rule of an institution. We can look at some of the things he did. Abdul Malik established the first Arabic coinage. Before that, they had been using Byzantine and Persian coins. He likewise standardized systems of weights and measures, which doesn't sound that exciting, but it's very important for trade, particularly in this medieval period. And so the Islamic empire would grow to be the, the really the great trading powerhouse of the world at this time on a, on a scale with China. He established a postal system, which was made up of series of stations for horse riders. And this enabled messages to be sent across the empire. So think of a time before planes existed, before any sort of um, internet or even any telephones existed. It was possible to send messages from one end of the empire to the other. Abdul Malik also really completed the standardization of the organization of the government, of the bureaucracy, which had begun under the first Umayyad Caliph Muawiyah. He divided the empire into a number of provinces, and the, the number varied from five to nine during the Umayyad period. But it's important to remember, we're talking about huge territories, which correspond nowadays to several large countries. And the Caliph appointed viceroys, or princes, they were known as emirs, and we still have that word today. That's where we get the United Arab Emirates, for example. And they were responsible for the political and military operations, tax collection, which was very important in this empire, and also for maintaining the religious courts. One of the innovations of the Islamic empire was that the Muslims, of course, were, were governed by the Islamic courts, but the religious minorities were allowed to have their own courts. So the Christians and the Jews had their own judges, and they followed their own laws within their own communities. And this is where, really, the development of the Islamic legal apparatus took on a, a huge role, and we'll talk a, a little bit about that later. We have to see that this was very different than what was happening in Christianity, where the church had evolved as essentially a separate religious institution and had to exert influence on governments. And when you look at the history of the Middle Ages, there's just constant power balance between who has more power. At times it's the Pope, at times it's various kings. This is a very different situation here in Islam, where this entire thing is one Islamic empire. The caliph is the head of all of it. And yes, he does have religious and legal experts operating the courts, operating the schools, and doing the teaching. But this is just one part of the entire government apparatus. And of course, this legal apparatus that was established, the Islamic courts, was extremely complex and it was very important. And part of it was necessary to govern this large empire. I mean, you needed to have a legal system. But it was also part of a trend which we saw emerging right from the very first disputes between the followers of Ali and those who later became known as the Sunnis. Remember from the selection of Abu Bakr as the first caliph, the chief assertion that the future Sunnis made was that they were adhering to the teachings and the example or the sunnah of the prophet, and that was the guide. And their job was to interpret it and teach it. It was not the personality of a specific individual that they were following. 
And this, of course, became the justification not just of Abu Bakr and Omar, but it was the essential justification that Muawiyah used to take control of the empire. This really becomes formalized and expanded under Abdul Malik. We get a very strong system of courts, and then supporting those are the the legal schools, which would evolve into universities. And this, again, is a response to the Shia, saying that this is an entire apparatus which is based on the model following the example of the prophet and not following one individual. Now, the impact of this legal code went way beyond just legal and religious matters. It had a huge impact on trade, and one of the reasons was it gave a standard means of resolving disputes, a standard means of doing business that could be applied anywhere in the empire and for anyone doing business with Muslims who were under Muslim courts. So one of the things that helped Islam grow as a great trading power and an economic powerhouse was this Islamic law. Now, whether you personally were a Muslim and wanted to follow Islamic law or not, this was still a great thing if you were trading with this empire, which of course was the, the biggest and richest empire in the world. Now, along those same lines, we can look at what is probably the most influential innovation of Abdul Malik's rule, and that was the imposition of the Arabic language as the official language of the empire and of state business. Previously, Persian and in some parts of the empire, Greek had been used among government officials because, remember, the empire had inherited these people and institutions from the Byzantines and the Persians. Well, Arabic already had a leg up. As remember, we talked earlier about the language of the Quran being standardized in Arabic and how it was intended to avoid a lot of the problems that the Christians were already having between different translations of the scriptures and accepting which were the correct scriptures and the fact that their scriptures were written in a language different than what they spoke on a daily basis. So the Quran from the very beginning was to be rendered exactly verbatim in Arabic. And the Arabic language was standardized first as a means of dealing with the Quran. This is when the system of dots and letters that you see on Arabic writing and the marks for short vowels came into being. It was about the early 700s that this was formalized. And it was directed by the Caliph. Now, this was first off for religious purposes, so everyone would have the exact same scriptures and there would be no debate about that and no dispute. Well, it became the next obvious step to make this the official language of the state because we already had one language that had been studied extensively, which was having its grammar and its rules of uses being laid down in very concrete terms. And this was the language that everyone had to use for their religious purposes in worship in Islam, we don't use other languages, we don't use translations of the Quran. So this meant that Muslims from Spain to the borders of China were already using this language for one purpose, a very important purpose in their life. So this became an easy and an obvious choice to become the lingua franca of the state and when it became the lingua franca of this great empire, it would also become the language that people who were trading and dealing with the Muslims would use. So really, to get ahead, one needed to learn Arabic. 
So this meant, of course, if you wanted to write books on chemistry, on medicine, on philosophy, on engineering, well, you should use the language that you knew everyone in the empire was using. This led to a relationship between the religion, the Arabic language, and the Arabic Islamic culture that has an impact even to this day. So when we talk about an Arabic Islamic culture, it's because of this overlap. Even those scholars who worked in this empire who were not Muslims would still use the Arabic language because that was the lingua franca. Now just to give you an idea, this was before English even came into existence as a language. And this same Arabic language, the classical Arabic of the Quran, is still preserved and in use today. Now, of course, uh, in normal everyday conversation, there are Arabic dialects that differ significantly from classical Arabic. But there is still a very important role for formal Arabic throughout not only the Arab world, but the Muslim world, which is much larger. And so the impact of this decision of really enshrining the Arabic language as the one standard language of this empire, uh, we're still living with it today and we're still seeing the effects of it today. Another place where we can still see the tangible evidence of the Umayyad influence is in architecture. And this is where, really where great Islamic architecture begins. One of the most recognizable mosques in the world is, of course, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. I'm sure you've all seen pictures of it and recognize what a beautiful structure this is. Uh, this dates back to the, the time of Abdul Malik, and he established this great mosque there largely as an alternate pilgrimage site during the time when that rebel was in control of Mecca. There was the great Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, which was supposedly built on the tomb of John the Baptist. Uh, I've actually been there and been shown the, the tomb of John the Baptist, where his head is supposedly located, and is counted by many as the fourth most holy mosque in Islam. In any case, it's a great architectural achievement, and that was built by Abdul Malik's son, Walid. actually was built upon a, a church that was already there. And there's the famous story of how the Christians were compensated by giving another building to replace their church. Now, in this construction, they set the precedents that successors would follow throughout the centuries. Of course, Islam condemned the elaborate representations of human forms, like the pictures of the saints in Christian cathedrals. But they had to develop their own type of art and a model for mosque architecture. And so if you go into any Islamic religious structure today, what you see is not depictions of humans. You see very elaborate calligraphy. And this is because the Word of God, the verbatim Word of God, the Quran, is the one thing we have directly from God and therefore is holy. And so art based on calligraphy, basically honoring uh, the Word of God as we have it in the Arabic script, became one of the main forms of decoration. The other thing you see a lot of are very elaborate mosaics. And this is one of the effects of the innovations that the Muslims were beginning to make in mathematics, was being able to lay out these mosaic patterns. And they have a beauty all their own. What we think of as the standard mosque layout was really set during this period. So, of course, the minaret, which is probably the most recognizable part of any mosque, that's the tower from which the call to prayer is issued. Uh, 
used to be done by voice and now it's largely done by loudspeakers. Uh, this began in Syria and what they did is they followed the model of watchtowers which were common in the cities of the area. If you go into the mosque, the mihrab, which is the recessed area at the front of the mosque, is built to indicate the direction of Mecca. This was also introduced by the Umayyads at this time. Its function was initially practical. At that time, microphones didn't exist, and so the prayer leader, when he stood in front of the congregation and would lead the prayers, he would be speaking into this curved recess area in the wall, and if it was built correctly, again, using very uh, precise mathematics, it would amplify the voice. And you can go to some of the, the great classical mosques of the Arab world and stand in the right location and speak, and your voice will be carried in a very nice way uh, throughout the building. The functions of a mosque were really set during this time. Of course, they built on the traditions that had grown up during the time of the prophet. But uh, a mosque became not just a place for solemn contemplation or sermons alone, kind of the way we think of the, the sanctity of a Christian church. But it, the mosque really became the main gathering place for the community. This is where the rulers delivered their speeches. And this is because Islam, as we said, grew up as a state and a religion, a complete community at the same time. So there wasn't really this separation of the political leadership and the religious gatherings. Gatherings were of the entire community for whatever purpose. Well, Walid, he also became famous for building large charitable complexes around mosques. So they were typically not to be just places of worship, but they would hold libraries, eventually schools, hospitals, dormitories for the students. These essentially nursing homes for the elderly and crippled grew up here. And so these grew into large charitable complexes, and what was done there in Syria would be replicated throughout the Islamic Empire. Well, it wasn't all business for the caliph. Uh, as you might imagine, rulers with great riches and great power, they gain reputations for living lives of luxury and for partying. And this really begins with Muawiyah's son Yazid. Now, as you remember, he's already got kind of a bad reputation as being the, the guy who killed uh, Hassan at the Battle of Karbala uh, and for inheriting the leadership from his father instead of letting the community decide as they had before. But Yazid is also renowned in Arabic tradition as Yazid the wine drinker. Well, he didn't get that name for nothing. Uh, but he wasn't the only one. So these nightly parties of the rich and powerful uh, would go some way to tarnishing the reputation of the Umayyads. As we've seen, they tend to get a, uh, a pretty hard reputation in terms of their religious observance. But as far as the Shia and the Kharijites were concerned, this was just one more reason why they were decadent and they were bringing down the community in their eyes. Despite this, however, these gatherings that the rulers had, and it wasn't just caliphs, these were really all people of power, 
throughout the empire would would have these uh, gatherings, these diwans, where they would bring all their friends together. These did actually spur on a resurgence of the arts. Of course, during the, the Rashidun period, during the wars we've been describing, there wasn't much time or much uh, excess resources to dedicate on arts. But during this time, with the empire fairly stabilized and a tremendous amount of wealth coming in, I mean, not only would these be parties with a lot of decadence going on, which they certainly were, but this is, these were places where the arts would begin to uh, really resurface. Well, one of the favored forms of entertainment included singing girls, um, who were known not just for their great singing, but for their great beauty and, you know, great ability to entertain. Uh, many of them became quite famous and uh, accumulated great wealth. They became almost like the, the rock stars or the pop stars of the day. What we think of as the traditional Arab instruments, like the oud, from which the word lute comes, were imported from Persia, and, and they became popular during the day. But certainly what grew as the greatest art and the most respected art was poetry. Now this had been the favorite art of the Arabs in pre-Islamic times, uh, but it fell into disfavor and the, the prophet himself is often seen as being harsh against poets and, and condemning them. Now he wasn't specifically against poets when we look at what he said, but he was against what they were actually using their poetry for. Uh, during that time they were using poetry to glorify uh, fighting and sex and stealing and some pretty bad stuff and not using it to glorify God and so the the prophet had some pretty harsh words for them. Well during the Umayyad period uh, poetry has a great comeback and it will continue to flourish and really reach its heights during the the Abbasid period. And this is somewhat logical when we think about the role of the Arabic language in the empire uh, where command of the Arabic language was the mark of distinction in a way you advanced while being deft with the language, being able to manipulate the language was highly uh, respected. So Arabic poetry would surge to new heights and the ability to appreciate Arabic poetry and even write some of your own. Uh, most of the, the Khalifs wrote at least some of their own poetry. This was highly respected. Now we shouldn't think that this was all uh, very proper in religious poetry. Erotic poetry had a, a big revival during this time, and wine poetry became one of the most popular types of uh, poetry. I mean, no one was considered a good poet unless they wrote uh, at least one chamaria, which is a poem extolling the virtues of wine. Other types of poetry, like insult poetry, the hajjah, also became popular. And this is the idea of exalting one's own tribe and insulting your rivals had been a long cherished tradition from Bedouin society, but now it took on added significance. So if you were an important person, you would want to have in your entourage a poet who could sing your glories and basically trash your enemies. Now there were three great poets of the Umayyad age, Farazdik, Jarir, and Al-Akhtal, and they were famous for their vicious poetry battles, especially the first two. Now, we think nowadays we have these rap battles between great rappers today where they really go out and, and trash each other and are really harsh on each other. Well, this is what they did, and don't think for a moment that what you hear today is any more raunchy or savage than what these people wrote. I mean, they wrote some really harsh 
nasty stuff and really nothing was off limits. Well, poets, like any other kind of artist, they need a patron to make a living, and that's what these poets did. They would attach themselves to the rich and powerful who would essentially finance them having a lifestyle of luxury and partying. But in the process, they produce some great poetry, which has really come to stand as landmark achievements of Arabic literature. The reason we don't hear a lot about the Umayyad arts or the sciences is because most everything that they began and started to develop would reach its height, would really flourish under the Abbasid age which followed, and it really overshadowed everything the Umayyads accomplished. But in reality, the Umayyad caliphs did place a great value on sciences, particularly medicine. That was one of the first ones they tackled, and you can understand why, because they're trying to supervise a large empire and they had come through recently periods of plagues in the earlier centuries. Now medicine at that time largely came from Greek and Persian scholars and I mean honestly it's not stuff you would want to have performed on you today but it was the best in the world at the time. For example even though the Muslim medical scholars didn't know a lot about how disease was transmitted they figured out pretty quickly that quarantining sick people was one way of stopping the spread of disease. So the first hospitals were established in the Muslim cities as a way of getting the people with contagious diseases out of the general population, which was a huge improvement over what was going on in Europe, where they believed that disease was essentially a judgment from God, a punishment from God, and anyone who tried to interfere with it was going against God's will. Another thing that was very important in terms of medicine and health in the Islamic world was the importance of hygiene. Simply in the Islamic prayers required people to perform the, the wudu or the, the ritual washing of the hands and face five times a day before prayers. And so mosques became some of the few public places that actually had fountains for washing yourself. The Muslims basically inherited the best medical schools in the world at the time, which were in Alexandria was one, and in Syria and in Persia. And initially, the leading medical scholars were Syrian Christians and Persians, and particularly Jews from Persia. Now, their knowledge was really rudimentary, but it was the beginning of an important trend of Muslim medicine. And this is a period where we begin to see alchemy, astronomy, philosophy begin to emerge, but they'll all go on to really flourish during the Abbasid period, which we're going to discuss in a later episode. All right, welcome back. Well, it's also during the Umayyad period that we get the beginning of one of the more controversial and uh, long-lasting ideas discussed about Islam. And this is the division of the world into spheres, Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb. And you hear about the last one in particular. Well, this is a concept that has certainly captured the attention of many of those in the West, particularly people who like to write about the idea of conflict between Islam and the West. And it was included in Samuel Huntington's very influential book, The Clash of Civilizations. 
It's one of those ideas that tends to get very superficial treatment, and the reality is a lot more complicated and a lot less clear. And so this is an idea that tends to pop up in discussions of conflict uh, between civilizations. So it's worth taking a moment to examine what was actually discussed here. So the word dar in Arabic means house or abode, and it's often used in the sense of a larger kind of metaphoric house, like if you talk about a publishing house or a fashion house, this is the word that is used. Now these two terms are not mentioned in the Quran, but they're generally attributed to the Islamic jurist Abu Hanif, who's a founder of one of the major schools of Islamic law that we'll discuss in the future. These terms really came into popular use after the Muslim defeat at the Battle of Tur in 732 AD. And that, as we discussed in the previous episode, marked the, the high point of Islamic penetration into Europe. That's where the Islamic forces were defeated in southern France. And as we mentioned then, while it's hailed as a... Uh, historic victory that saved France and the rest of Europe in European history, it really more accurately marked the, the Muslim conquest running out of steam. But in any case, it was still a very painful realization for this empire to, I mean, to recognize the fact that it, conquest had pretty much come to an end. Really what was much more traumatic was the failed siege of Constantinople in 718, which had been one of the major targets uh, that the Muslim Arabs were never able to conquer. And we should also mention that even though today we only hear about these two Dar, the Dar al-Salam and the Dar al-Harb, uh, there were actually more that were used in Islamic law. The world was divided into several domains. So first, of course, there was Dar al-Salam or Dar al-Islam, which means the house of Islam or the house of peace, which essentially meant the same thing in this case. This was the domain, the part of the world that was under Muslim rule. And we have to remember at this time we're talking about one Muslim state, a unified empire with a unified government. So that was the world. I mean, they never called themselves the Umayyad Caliphate or the Abbasid Caliphate. It was Dar al-Salam. This was the term for their piece of the world. And because they were the empire of Islam, this was the way of designating the area of which they had control. Now, there were a few others. There was Dar al-Ahad, which is the house of truce, Dar al-Sulh, which basically means the house of agreement. Dar al-Hudna, which is the house of calm. Remember we mentioned the word Hudna in an earlier episode is denoting a temporary peace. This was the peace Muhammad made with the people of Mecca, the Quraysh. Now all these denote the relationship between the Muslim state, this Dar al-Salam, and the land in question. Like, for example, a part of the world would be considered Dar al-Hudna because there was a Hudna between the two sides. Or Dar al-Sul, which means they had an agreement between them. A truce was a higher level of a more permanent peace between them. Well, lastly, there was Dar al-Harb. And Harb, of course, is the Arabic word for war. This turns out to be a rather unfortunate choice of words uh, as it's been rendered today. But basically, this is the part of the world for which Dar al-Salam, the Muslim empire, has no agreement. They have no peace treaty. 
there's no status between them. I mean, essentially, there's no relations of all. And so it's an, an area that can be considered hostile, uh, can be considered a threat. Now, most scholars today see these as terms uh, for jurisdictions of Muslim law and the status of someone living in one of these zones. For example, if you were a Muslim living in a land controlled by hostile forces, you were in the Dar al-Harb that had no sort of peace agreements, no agreements at all with the Muslim state, then what could be expected of you was different than someone who was living in the Muslim empire. I mean, you might not realistically even had the opportunity to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca. It might have been impossible. It was also viewed that the leaders in Dar al-Harb were called upon to convert to Islam. And the basis of this was the letters we talked about earlier that Muhammad had sent to the great rulers of his time. If you remember, he sent letters to the uh, empires of Abyssinia, Persia, and Byzantium calling on them to convert. And so from this, the tradition was these were places that had not converted to Islam or made an agreement with Islam, a peace, and so they were called upon to convert. Now what's not clear here is the term harb, war. It could mean that these are lands that were at war with Islam. They had no truce or agreement, or in a sense that they were at war with God, they hadn't made their peace with God. Now it could also be interpreted that these areas were fair game for attack. And this goes along with the idea of the concepts of the Fatuhat. Remember, this is what the conquests were called, fatuhat, from fat, which means to open. This is territory that could be opened or needed to be opened for Islam until they made a deal. So if you remember, during the process of the conquest, we talked about the people in any given area, in any given country, were given an option. They could make a, make a deal, make an agreement, make some sort of treaty. They could submit to Islam and become part of it, or, I mean, they could convert as well. Or they could decide to fight it out to the end, and most of them did. Well, all of these ideas were probably implied in this idea of Dar al-Harb, this area that was basically the hostile territory. But what this really reflects here is a shift in thinking. Uh, earlier, the, the idea had been that the process of conversion and conquest would go on unabated, unchecked, until the entire world became safe for Islam. And if we look at that first century, that's really what it seemed like. We see Islam spreading, conquering, uh, really without any significant obstacles. And the idea that the entire world would become Dar al-Salam, that would become this house of Islam, I mean, that seemed pretty much logical. It seemed what was going on. What we have here now is a recognition of the status quo, essentially that this world of Islam exists next to hostile and neutral parties. For example, there's a Byzantine empire that we haven't been able to conquer, and we have to deal with it. And conquering Constantinople is, is not going to be the solution in the near future. Well, in any case, this turned out to be an unfortunate choice of terms. Kind of like uh, you may remember that during the Vietnam War, the military uh, had the policy of designating areas in which one didn't need to get permission to fire as a, quote, free fire zone. Meaning everywhere else you had to clear it. You had to get permission before you could fire into that area to make sure you minimized uh, civilian casualty. 
Well, when this got picked up by the media, the idea of a free fire zone sounded like a kill anything zone. Well, what's happened today is modern day jihadists and terrorists have picked up on this terminology of Dar al Salaam and Dar al Harb and have taken it that way. And using their brand of terror, considering that to be a legitimate form of war, Dar al Harb has come to them to sound like a free fire zone where anything goes. This is the area of the infidel where war is, is allowed to take place. Now certainly when we look at the conduct of the, the Rashidun, of the Umayyad empires and the Abbasid empire that followed, and the way their jurists interpreted, that was definitely not the intent. I mean clearly what they were talking about is areas where there, there may have been war uh, and war was possible, but they were certainly not talking about acts of terror. And it was certainly not talking about the idea that they were allowed to, to go out and destroy these areas. In fact, this designation of Dar es Salaam and Dar al Harb was a recognition that they weren't conquering anymore, uh, that they, they weren't spreading any further, and that the, the borders had pretty much stabilized. And just further on this subject, uh, modern jurists today interpret the de uh, definition of Dar es Salaam differently. According to most mainstream jurists who ex address this subject, and, and many don't, many consider this to something that's antiquated and doesn't even apply anymore, but to most jurists, countries like the United States or Great Britain, which guarantee freedom of religion, are therefore part of Dar es Salaam because Muslims are allowed to worship freely there. I mean, some even consider that any place that respects the UN charters for freedom fall into this uh, category. So in any case, this is certainly not uh, intended as a justification for terrorism here. So those who talk about this concept like they've discovered some secret conspiracy to to declare war on the world, I mean, they're obviously not looking at the context in which this developed and, and what it actually meant at the time. The concept of Dar es Salaam is just one more example of this Muslim empire, this Umayyad Caliphate, coming to the realization that it's a great world empire, but also that it's existing alongside other empires and that it will be dealing with them uh, for some time to come. There would continue to be skirmishes, uh, particularly between the Byzantines and the Umayyads. In fact, every summer the front line would move a little bit one way or another. But these are mostly a show, a way of the Muslim caliph or the Byzantine emperor showing that they were continuing the good fight. Really, the idea of a continually expanding domain of Islam had been put in check by this time. But if you remember back to an earlier episode, we cite the, the great historian Philip Hitti's paradigm of Islam as being three things, a religion, a state, and a culture. The end goal, of course, was spreading the religion to all the world, at least that's the way it was supposed to be. But through the first century of Islam, the expanding state appeared to be the way to do that. It appeared that this state, this empire, was going to expand its power, establish its rule, and gradually allow and encourage the population to convert, uh, eventually bringing the world to Islam. 
Well, almost a hundred years exactly after the death of the Prophet, the Islamic State seemed to have reached its zenith. It had reached its maximum extent, and it didn't look like it would be making any major expansions uh, in the future. But now, the engine of expansion was going to be the culture, that Muslim-Arabic culture. I mean, yes, the borders of Dar es Salaam, the Muslim Empire, had pretty much fixed. But what was coming now was a scientific and intellectual renaissance that was going to spread not only Islamic thinking and philosophy and Arabic culture uh, well beyond the borders to places where its armies couldn't go and would expand by trading and by economics. In fact, today, the largest Muslim populations in the world are all in places that are outside this original empire. These are places that were converted by the spread of trade and learning, the need for standardization of laws, of measures, and the language that Islam would bring. So accordingly, the golden age of Islam is not generally considered to be the period of the greatest military conquest, that would be during the Umayyad period, but rather the age of scholarship that follows it. And that's where we're headed next, and we will be for a while, when the mighty Umayyad state is succeeded by the Abbasid Caliphate, which inaugurates this great era of civilization and intellectual achievement. Well, we hope to see you then. Thank you very much. Masalam. Ma